Hi everyone, this is episode 26 of Disastercast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. If you've ever wondered why safety is considered a systems discipline rather than simply a specialisation of chemical, civil, mechanical or electronic engineering, the Humboldt battery is a great example. To a chemical engineer, a battery is an electrolytic process, with ions travelling from cathode to anode or vice versa, depending on what the battery is doing. To a mechanical engineer, a battery is a combined heat source and a container filled with hazardous substances. To an electronic engineer, a battery is a source or sink of electric power. In each role, the battery is not a single component, but is part of a variety of engineering systems. As a chemical reaction, it is part of an atmospheric system. As a hot, toxic container, it is part of a physical layout. As a source of electricity, it's part of a control or power system. For safety, we need to understand the battery as all of these things at once. In this episode, we're going to discuss a number of battery hazards, along with some associated accidents. I've had some help putting the show together. Andy Dixon had the original idea. So if at the end of the episode you are, just like I am right now, staring suspiciously at your mobile phone wondering if it's going to blow up, you can blame Andy. Thanks, mate. Mike Ellums, friend of the show, chased down a few rumours of strange battery accidents, and Matthew Square, who runs the Critical Uncertainties blog, pointed me to some useful resources. Chris Johnson from Glasgow University alerted me to the fact that non-energetic batteries can be just as dangerous as actively misbehaving ones. Let's get started with the episode by talking about the chemistry of batteries. A battery is just a name for a collection of electrochemical cells. Each cell has two electrodes, the negative cathode and the positive anode, immersed in an electrolyte. The easiest way to visualise this is to think of the electrolyte as a liquid, and the electrodes at wires at each end of the liquid. You get electricity when electrons are stripped from molecules at the anode, creating positively charged ions, which head across to the cathode, where they get electrons back again. This results, of course, in too many electrons at the anode and not enough electrons at the cathode, so the system balances itself out by sending electrons through whatever wires or system are attached to the battery. That flow of electrons is electricity. In many cells, you can add electricity instead to make things go in the opposite direction, recharging the battery. I'm oversimplifying a little, but not actually by all that much. The model I've just given is enough to explain most of the battery effects we're interested in. The different types of batteries are just made up by using different materials for the anode, cathode, and electrolyte. Most of the non-rechargeable batteries we use around the house, the ones we call AA or AAA, are a single cell in a steel can. The electrolyte is potassium hydroxide, which is why we call them alkaline batteries as opposed to the previous acidic batteries. Potassium hydroxide is fairly nasty stuff if it gets out. As the batteries get old, the steel can corrodes or the internal chemistry changes enough that it starts producing hydrogen, which bursts the battery. The rechargeable variants of these are nickel-cadmium batteries, or NICADs, and nickel-metal hydroxide batteries, NIMHs. These can get hot if you plug them in backwards but I haven't been able to find any accidents directly caused by NICADs. They do present a chronic risk. 
Cadmium is very poisonous, so there have been cases of illness caused in assembling the batteries, or at the other end of the life cycle through improper disposal. You can get NICAD batteries in larger sizes, but apart from safety, they're inferior to at least one of their competitors for most applications. So let's move on to talk about the first of these competitors, lead-acid batteries. The batteries traditionally used in cars have lead electrodes and a sulfuric acid electrolyte. While this arrangement is cheap and convenient, it has a number of problems. Until relatively recently, the sulfuric acid needed to be in liquid form, which made it easy to spill. Spilled acid doesn't just corrode other things, it releases a variety of gases in the processes. A particular problem is if the acid mixes with seawater, either by the seawater coming in or the acid getting out. The S5 was a post-World War I United States submarine. During an endurance run in September 1921, S5 dove underwater with the main induction valves open. The induction system serves to provide the submarine, in particular the diesel engines, with air, at least while it's on the surface. Underwater, they just provide an excellent way to flood the submarine. So, as you might imagine, the valves that close the induction are pretty important. And there are two separate sets of valves to make sure that there's extra protection. The outboard set stop water getting into the induction system, and the inboard set stop water getting out of the induction system into the submarine. The crew on S5 were in the habit of closing only the outer valves, and closing the inner set once they were fully underwater. Unfortunately, the crewman responsible for the outboard valves got distracted helping someone else, and by the time he realised his mistake it was too late. The valves in the forward torpedo room couldn't be closed at all because of the water rushing through them, and the valves in the motor room were closed, but only after 80 tonnes of seawater had got in. The nose of the submarine ploughed into the seabed, and the aft end began to settle as well. So the quick-thinking crew did exactly what they were supposed to do. They emptied the main ballast in the fuel tanks, and dumped the water out of the motor room into the battery department. This lifted the aft of the submarine out of the water, but almost killed everyone in the control room as the batteries started spewing chlorine gas. By this stage, though, the back end of the submarine was just poking out of the water, where two passing merchant vessels saw it. They came along to see what was happening, and eventually they cut a hole to let everyone out. All the crew survived, but the S5 was never salvaged. The USS Squalus was a Sargo-class submarine, designed and built just before World War II. On 23rd of May 1939, Squalus dove underwater with, you guessed it, the main induction valves open. This is the same problem as with the S5, but the mechanical situation was a little bit more complex. A Sargo-class submarine turned off the diesel engines after diving. Diesel engines suck a lot of air, so they need ventilation until the very last moment or they're going to suffocate the crew by sucking all the air. So the design needed them to shut the outer induction valves first, and then to shut the inner valves only after the engines were fully off. Since this means there's a period when they're relying on just the single valves to close the submarine, there was a system of warning lights for each valve, and overall an air pressure test to check that the submarine was watertight before it went under the surface. Probably what happened is that the valve partially shut, 
So it was shut enough to turn the red warning light off, but not enough to turn the green safe light on either. The crew checked that all the red lights were off and that they only had green lights showing, but they didn't notice that one of the green lights was missing. In the end, half of the crew were killed in the flooding, and the Squalus came to rest on the bottom of the ocean. After this initial disaster, all of the rescue went perfectly, and this is one of the great studies in people escaping from a submarine. The crew could have tried to evacuate themselves, but if they had done that, they would have just ended up on top of freezing water, and they probably would have died from exposure before they got rescued. So instead, what they did is they fired smoke and rockets and waited. The USS Sculpin came looking for them, and after it found them, it directed the submarine rescue vessel USS Falcon. Falcon had a specially designed undersea rescue chamber, so it sent it down several times and pulled all of the surviving crew back up. The only complication was that, you guessed it, some of the crew had to go through chambers filled with chlorine gas from the flooded batteries. Squalus ended up being refloated. It got renamed as the Sailfish and had quite a distinguished World War II career. One of Sailfish's victims was a Japanese aircraft carrier carrying the captured survivors of the USS Sculpin. Chlorine gas is not the only problem with lead-acid batteries. Sulfuric acid, remember used as the electrolyte, contains a lot of water. When you run electricity through water, it turns into hydrogen and oxygen. This happens a little bit each time you recharge a lead-acid battery. But once the battery is fully charged, all of the extra electricity goes into electrolysis. Not only do lead-acid batteries, therefore, need to be regularly topped up with water, but when they're overcharged, they produce a potentially explosive mixture of gases. On 25th of August 1949, the USS Cochino was operating north of the Arctic, in company with the USS Tusk. The sea was incredibly rough. The submarines were broaching the surface one moment and being washed below snorkelling depth the next. It was this harsh environment, rather than any sort of human or mechanical error, that caused water to wash through the snorkel and induction system. The water wasn't quite enough to flood the submarine, but it did cause a short circuit in the electrics. The battery compartment filled with smoke and fire and had to be evacuated. And just as it was abandoned, the crew realised that the batteries were short-circuited. All of the power from one battery was being shoved through another battery. The executive officer tried to get back into the compartment to disconnect the batteries, but there was an explosion almost immediately, followed by fires and further explosions. Eventually, the Cochino was abandoned, with all of the crew rescued by the Tusk. It's hard in the brief span of a podcast to describe the rescue. It's rather an amazing story of seamanship. Transferring supplies and personnel at sea is a dangerous task, even at the best of times. In Sea State 4, it's insanely difficult. After the first explosion, a number of the crew needed to be rescued from the aft compartments of the submarine to avoid being gassed. They couldn't go through the fires, so they had to come round the outside of the submarine. One of the lieutenants had to make his way down the outside of the pitching submarine, carrying a safety line, and then 60 wet men had to come back up and huddle outside the conning tower. 
Once they'd achieved this difficult job, they discovered that the medical supplies needed to treat the burn victims were back in the unsafe area that they had evacuated. So they contacted the Tusk to try to get hold of medical supplies. The commander of the Tusk made three attempts to come alongside. Then the Commodore of the Flotilla pushed him aside and had an attempt himself. Then the XO of the Tusk tried and failed as well. Eventually a line was sent from the Cochino to the Tusk, and a small boat with two men went along the line to try to get supplies. While they were doing this, the line snapped at one end, and the loose bolt had to get pulled in by hand, only to spill its occupants into the water just before it got there. One of the men, a civilian contractor, was knocked unconscious while he was being rescued. By now, we've got all the difficulties on one submarine, the Cachino, but on the Tusk, we've got 15 men standing out on the deck, an unconscious man, and waves washing overboard. 11 of these men on the Tusk got knocked into the water, and six of them, along with the injured man, died in the water. After this tragedy, and the raft still bouncing from 15 feet below the Tusk to 10 feet above it with each wave going past, they decided not to try sending any people back and forth. So they sent the medical supplies across on a boat without any humans on board. Eventually they got the diesel engines on the Cachino restarted, but explosions just kept happening and it was obvious that the boat would never make it to port. The Tusk finally managed to come alongside and they tied a plank loosely to each boat, tipping and dropping into the water as the vessels moved against each other. Every time the plank was levelled, men rushed across it in those few moments, and eventually they fully evacuated the Tusk just a few minutes before it sank. The subsequent investigation found that the original explosion was probably caused by hydrogen that had accumulated before the seawater flooding incident. So it wasn't because the seawater came on board, but just because of the difficult operational conditions, the crew hadn't managed to properly ventilate the compartments, and they hadn't detected the build-up of hydrogen. The seawater incident and the short circuits just served to provide the spark, but they weren't by themselves the full cause of the disaster. Now, the reason that all the examples so far have been submarines is really just because they're a major user of lead-acid batteries in confined spaces. This isn't really an episode about submarines, and these risks are present wherever you're using lead-acid batteries. Data centres and telecommunication hubs, for example, have battery backup rooms in case mains power is unavailable, and hydrogen explosion of those rooms is actually relatively common. Fortunately, one of the factors causing them to explode is usually a lack of supervision, so the result is loss of service rather than loss of life. If the facility in question happens to be providing a service essential for safety, though, that's a whole other issue which we'll come to later. Car batteries are lead-acid batteries, but they don't often explode while they're in cars. The biggest risk is when they're being charged in exceptional circumstances, such as when you're jump-starting or in a garage. The unusual circumstances make it more likely that people are going to do improper charging, generating hydrogen and oxygen, as well as making it more likely that there's going to be a spark. Now, lead-acid batteries are pretty scary, and they're very heavy for the amount of energy they hold. 
They've also been around for a long time, so it's no surprise we've come up with something better. Let's move on. The batteries in laptops, tablets, phones and military drones use various lithium compounds as the electrolyte. These batteries store a lot more power for their weight, and they can discharge or recharge more quickly. The advantages come at a safety cost though. Lithium batteries generate a fair bit of heat when providing power. Also, the electrolyte is stored under pressure, is highly reactive with any moisture, and is flammable. Also, the recharging reaction is temperature dependent. If the battery is below 0 degrees Celsius when it's recharged, pure metallic lithium is deposited on the anode. This doesn't get undone when the battery discharges, and makes the battery more vulnerable to vibration and shock. The most serious failure mode of a lithium battery is thermal runaway. In a runaway, all of the battery's energy gets released quickly as heat, in a self-sustaining reaction. More heat means more reaction means more heat. While this can in theory happen with any type of electrolyte, it's more likely and more serious in a lithium battery, exactly because they're such good batteries. They store more energy in a smaller space, so there's more likely to be an intense reaction. Once a runaway's occurred, there are a number of possible ways things can get worse. Internal reactions generate gas, which needs to be vented. In larger batteries, the hot surface of the battery can be enough to ignite the gas. In extreme cases, the heat or the resulting gas is enough to ignite the flammable electrolyte. What fun! We have a device that can be dangerously hot and potentially explosive, and that's before it catches fire. Did I mention that lithium reacts with both water and nitrogen, making lithium fires really hard to put out? Because of all these issues, most lithium batteries actually have safety electronics built into the battery itself. These electronics regulate charging and discharging of the cells in the battery, and they're usually vents as well. It's all this extra stuff which is why things like laptop batteries are so expensive. Since the battery is typically sealed, it's not always obvious whether or not the safety circuits are working. That's why lithium batteries have data connections as well as power connections, to allow devices to talk to the batteries as well as to get power from them. So to sum up the risks of lithium batteries, they get hot, they can go into thermal runaway, they can generate hydrogen gas, they're flammable, the electronics to stop thermal runaway can be broken or stop working, and the valves to release the gas can stop working as well. These are all down near the outcome end, and they aren't really under our control, which is what makes them scary. The underlying causes are more simple and more straightforward to manage. The causes are that the design of the battery itself can be imperfect, the manufacturer of the battery can introduce defects, or the battery can get damaged through mishandling or misuse. And all of the accidents we've seen with lithium batteries so far fall into one of these situations. So if you're looking to manage the safety of batteries, it's more simple than needing to worry about all the technology. You just need to make sure you've got batteries that are well designed, quality control on the manufacturer, and then that you treat the batteries appropriately. 
we have to be a bit careful in talking about lithium battery accidents. Because lithium fires are a fairly recent problem, and the exact circumstances are disputed in many of the cases. So let's just go through the ones that we know for sure about, and I'll tell you where the doubt is. There have been numerous cases of cameras and laptops catching fire, including inside aircraft in the main cabin or in the cargo hold. Some of these cases can be put down to mishandling. We can locate the event in which the battery got badly banged and use that as the explanation. Some of the other cases are due to whole batches of batteries that have been incorrectly manufactured, requiring recalls of a whole line of laptops or cameras. There have also been cases where there was nothing wrong with the battery itself, but it was loose and came into contact with a metal object, shorting across the terminals of the battery and starting a fire. The biggest cases have been where we've had lots of batteries together at once. On September 3rd, 2010, a 747 cargo plane left from Dubai. Shortly after takeoff, a fire occurred in the main cargo deck. The fire started in an area of the deck containing a large number of lithium batteries. We don't know for sure that the batteries started the fire, but they were definitely part of the early fire. Because the fire occurred inside a covered cargo container, it was well underway before it broke loose and started setting off the main deck smoke alarms. Now, when this sort of thing happens, smoke is normally kept away from the crew on the flight deck by maintaining positive pressure. You have more air pressure on the flight deck than the cargo hold, so any smoke gets blown away from the pilots. The air conditioning that's supposed to do this failed. We don't know exactly why in this case. It had already tripped off a couple of times before the fire, and so the recording system was already treating it as an intermittent fault, so it didn't take a clear snapshot of the exact time that the system finally packed it in. The cockpit began to fill with smoke, making it really hard to see the controls or even outside the plane. Both the pilots started using their oxygen masks, but the captain's oxygen supply wasn't working properly. We think what happened was the heat from the fire actually melted part of the oxygen system, taking away his oxygen. He left his seat to try to get an alternate oxygen mask. There were some in the jump seats, and there were spare portable masks, but he didn't make it to any of them. He collapsed before he could reach an alternate supply. Meanwhile, things just got worse and worse for the first officer. He couldn't see the controls, and he couldn't even change radio frequencies to talk to the correct air traffic controller because he couldn't see the knob to do it. The cables to the flight surfaces were becoming progressively more damaged, so the plane was getting harder and harder to control. As the aircraft descended for an emergency landing, the air pressure got higher as it got closer to the ground, and this made the fire and smoke worse and worse, and eventually the plane just fell completely out of control and crashed. That's one of two aircraft crashes linked to lithium battery cargoes. There's no smoking gun in either case saying that the fires started with the batteries. But at the very least, the batteries played a role in the early spread of the fire and made it hard to put out. Lithium battery concerns have also been raised with electric cars. In these cases, they mainly concern impact damage to the batteries. The Tesla S experienced two fires in 2013, where the cars ran over debris on the road, damaging the battery 
and both the Tesla S and the Chevrolet Volt have potential to catch fire in a crash. This shouldn't really be surprising. I mean, just a normal petrol fuel car has a chance of catching fire in a crash or having the fuel tank damaged by debris. It's just new that it's batteries as the power source instead of petrol. A bit more concerning are batteries that self-ignite due to design or manufacture problems. A, a good example here is probably the 787 aircraft. I don't really want to speculate here because we don't know the true source of the various problems, except to say that they're typical of something like lithium batteries providing all sorts of new opportunities due to being new technology, but those new opportunities coming with associated design risks and challenges. So far, all the battery problems we've talked about are side effects of what batteries are supposed to do. We accept the risks of batteries because we need the batteries to provide power. But what about what we actually want the batteries for? The most typical use of a battery is to provide continuous power during a period when main supply is not available. For personal devices, this is most of the time. Operating on batteries is the normal state. For cars and for aircraft, we use batteries for regular, fairly predictable operations that need to happen independently of engine power. For most other systems, ranging from smoke alarms to air traffic control, batteries are our short-term backup plan for when mains power gets interrupted. It's this third case, batteries is a backup, where they're particularly important for safety. Often we need just a little bit of power for a system to fail into a safe state. If nothing else, we need enough power to tell us that there isn't enough power so that we can degrade gracefully. Batteries used in this way are often called UPS, Uninterruptible Power Supply. Uninterruptible is a pretty grandiose name given how unreliable UPSs often are. And the fact that even when they work perfectly, they only provide power for a limited amount of time. My favourite UPS story concerns a particular computer program that crashed whenever the data centre was switched to UPS supply. Now, it's a known problem that electronics don't calculate correctly when they get too hot or when they operate at the wrong voltage. A circuit with not quite enough power won't necessarily stop working, but it may start behaving erratically. It's pretty unusual, though, for just one particular program to be sensitive to that. Why didn't everything on the computer start misbehaving? Well, you know how on a laptop there's a little symbol in the status bar to tell you how much battery power is left? This UPS had a custom application that showed a similar status bar symbol. Each time the UPS was engaged, the custom application started up and displayed the symbol, and there was a bug in the custom application, causing other programs that used the same part of the graphics engine to crash at the same time. Much more commonly, UPSs just fail to provide enough power for long enough. That can be because the capacity of the UPS doesn't match the demands of the system, or the through-life management of the UPS has failed. You can't just put a UPS in there and then think you've got a backup. Any sort of battery requires some sort of periodic maintenance. 
if for no other reason than just to check that it's holding enough charge. It's very easy to forget to do the maintenance, or to do the maintenance but forget to reconnect the UPS back into the system properly afterwards. These mistakes are latent. You don't know that your backup has failed until you need it to act as a backup. Inadequate battery backups have been implicated in accidents ranging from traffic lights to Fukushima. It's a major concern for air traffic management and for data centres that hold safety-critical information such as patient records. Well, that's about it for this episode of DisasterCast. Thanks again to Mike, Matthew, Chris and Andy. Thanks also to those of you who've rated or reviewed the show on iTunes and Stitcher during January. If you've got a topic you'd like covered on the show, please do send feedback via the website at disastercast.co.uk. There you can also find episode transcripts and links to more information. The next episode will be out on 25th of February. Keep safe.